that, that the last night you walked in, you talked to somebody. I said, I didn't talk to anybody. I went straight to the room. And, and then they showed it on camera that I did talk to somebody. That's why they moved me, because I guess the girl said I said something to her within that minute that, that we talked. And, you know, so they moved me. Michael Irvin and Marriott Hotels are embroiled in a battle that it feels like nobody will truly win. It's Wednesday, March 1st. Happy March to you all. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Let's take this from the very beginning, both so we get the whole story, but also because if you're just glancing at the headlines, you might be getting a skewed picture for reasons we'll get into. In the first week of February, Irvin was staying at a Renaissance hotel in Glendale, Arizona, so that he could be on site for the Super Bowl. Irvin is an analyst for the NFL Network and also regularly appears on ESPN's First Take with Stephen A. Smith. Okay. The brother is sweating like he's on the football field, oh, yeah. y'all. Yeah, give me some. Okay, all right. He was accused by a female employee at that hotel of harassing and inappropriate comments. As far as we know, he is not accused of doing anything physical. We don't know because she's not speaking publicly about this, and she hasn't filed a legal complaint against Irvin that we know about. The person who is talking is Irvin. Here he is in a radio interview shortly after the alleged incident. That Sunday night when I went out and came in, Sunday night, and this is tripping me out, and I don't remember it, but, but I, I guess when I came in, they said I met somebody in the lobby. That's why they moved me. That's why they moved me, because I guess the girl said I said something to her within that minute. Irvin was pulled from the NFL Network Super Bowl coverage and also didn't make his scheduled appearance on first take. He was also banned from Marriott's properties. So that put him at a fork in the road with two basic choices. Does he try to deal with this quietly, resolve things with his employers, with Marriott, perhaps with the accuser, and hope to reemerge before too long saying it was all a big misunderstanding? That was one potential path. Irvin did not choose that path. He chose to deal with this loudly. We had not, no idea. No headline, no yeah. news story. Yeah, well, you, you, well, I'm giving it to you. You should be hearing it or you should know about it. Irvin filed a $100 million defamation lawsuit against Marriott, which leases the Renaissance brand. Why $100 million? Well, they have to put down some number, and there is no real harm in overshooting by, say, $95 million. And more to the point, they want headlines. And they are getting them. That huge dollar figure is drawing coverage, and Irvin and especially his attorney, Levy McCarthern, are quick to give quotes on this. They are essentially using the fact that Marriott's representatives don't really want to talk. This is not publicity they are looking for and the accuser doesn't want to talk, and for that she has my sympathies. People in her position, whether or not their claims are true, tend to get harassed endlessly by people who don't have any real knowledge of the case beyond that what they have read in the news reports that are mostly quoting Irvin and his lawyer. So what are they saying? The case Irvin and MacArthur are making is that the accuser spoke to Irvin in the hotel lobby for less than a minute, and then he went to his room, she continued her shift, and that somewhere in there, she and perhaps other people conspired to cancel Michael Irvin. They're claiming that for some reason, she wanted to ruin his career, and that she made up an accusation that precipitated this whole thing. Does that make any sense? Probably not. But maybe. I mean, anything is possible. But if it's true, this is some kind of vendetta where the employee doesn't seem to be seeking money because she has not filed a legal complaint against Irvin. She just told her employer something, and that something was enough to get him banned from their properties and removed from his high-profile media appearances. On that latter point, it is true that brands have become cautious around things like promoting accused sexual offenders. 
Let's keep in mind that this environment in which you have people saying things like, you really gotta be careful what you say these days, the cancel police will come for you. This is so much better than the many decades of sexism just being the norm. So I have very little patience for the quickness with which people who are accused of racist or sexist or sexually inappropriate behavior just pull out the cancel culture thing like some kind of catch-all that is supposed to end the discussion. I know this stuff gets uncomfortable real fast, but it's a lot better than the previous status quo of mostly ignoring the accusers. That said, Irvin might be 100% innocent. We don't know what happened, but we might start to get some clues. For one, a judge has ordered Marriott to release security camera footage and any written complaints related to the case. Much has been made about the footage because Marriott has been reluctant to release it, and that might be because it hurts their case, or they could be protecting the employee from harassment, which I guarantee you is coming once her name gets out, or it could be for something more mundane. The footage could at least corroborate Irvin's claim about the length of the conversation. It won't tell us if there are additional interactions that could be relevant here, and it is also unlikely to have audio of what he said to her. Those details could come out from a written complaint, which will at least give us the she said of the he said she said. However, that order from the judge to provide all of that to Irvin was delayed by Marriott successfully moving this case from a Texas state court to a federal court. I expect that Irvin and his team will eventually get the video footage and the written complaint, assuming there is one, or if there's a trial, it will come out there. And that's just a reminder that the legal system moves much more slowly than the media. So you're going to see a torrent of articles about this, but it could be months before we get anything resembling a resolution or even a real understanding of what happened. And where I do sympathize with Irvin is that he is potentially left in limbo until that happens. But then again, this lawsuit is a path that he chose. All right, let's take this one off. What else is happening out there? The NBA and its Players Association are close to a new collective bargaining agreement that could lower the league eligibility age to 18. Currently, players entering the NBA draft have to be at least 19 during the calendar year that the draft happens. The league has moved its age minimum around a little over the years, but ultimately it wants the biggest stars, and sometimes those stars are 18. Sticking with the NBA, Milwaukee Bucks owner Mark Lazary is selling his 25% stake in the team to Cleveland Browns owner Jimmy Haslam and his Haslam Sports Group. The sale is believed to value the Bucks at $3.5 billion, which is not a bad return for Lazary, who bought the team with Wes Edens in 2014 for $550 million. That's more than a 6x return in 9 years. And finally, ESPN is reporting that a $55 million loan is at the center of a federal investigation into the Washington Commanders. The loan, taken out by Commanders owner Dan Snyder, should have required the approval of the team's minority owners, which Snyder allegedly did not get. Up next, I spoke to Chris Kennedy, who is the president of Houston's World Cup Committee on what it takes to prepare a city for what could be the biggest sporting event in history. We'll have that conversation right after this. Two thousand. 2008, 2022. When it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers. But over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting, so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need all in one place. 
So how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer, NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they improve their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. What are you waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash frontoffice right now. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. netsuite.com slash frontoffice. I am joined now by the president of the Houston 2026 World Cup host committee, Chris Canetti. Welcome, Chris. Thanks, Owen. Great to be here today. So the World Cup is it's three years away, spread around 16 North American cities. What are you doing to, uh, to get ready today for an event in three years? Uh, there's a lot to do. This is uh, being positioned as the largest sporting event in the history of the world. Uh, when you take into account that uh, there will be three nations hosting it, 16 host cities, as you said, two in Canada, two, uh, three in Mexico, and 11 here in the United States. The, the field will increase from 32 teams to 48 teams, and you know there'll be 80-plus matches, um, depending on what the final format is of the World Cup here. So it's going to be a major event, uh, an event that unites um, the world, if you will. And uh, there's a lot to do when it comes to planning it. So having a a three-plus-year runway is um, really valuable and important to getting things uh, organized. Uh, We're currently just getting started, to be honest with you. FIFA, of course, had to get through uh, the World Cup in Qatar at the end of 2022. And now that the calendar's turned into 2023, uh, more focus and attention is, is starting to turn on uh, 2026 but there's there's a lot to do like i said from organizing it on from a logistical basis um even just administrative basis getting legal entities set up getting boards and structures set up um starting to think about legacy and community impact um you know fundraising so lots of different elements that are going into uh, organizing and putting on this event you mentioned community impact uh what do you think this event's going to mean for houston well, we, our real mission here from the start was to um, make sure that this event would have a positive, long-lasting legacy on our city. It's one of the reasons why we set out to try to be a host. Of course, Houston um, has hosted many sporting events over the years. In fact, it's hosted more major sporting events than any other city since 2004. We've got the Final Four coming here in a few weeks, uh, college football championship next year. But my point with that is Houston has a track record of hosting these events and they found great success in using these events to help uh, make Houston a better place, if I were to sum it up in a, in a short way. So we want to take these major sporting events when we have the spotlight on our community, when we have um, uh, the stakeholders of our community organized and unified to be able to put things in place that are ultimately going to help our community improve over time and, and, and help the quality of life for our citizens. And what are some of the bigger challenges, especially ones that people from the outside might not not really think of um, when they think about what it means to to host such a huge event like this? Well, it's more than just uh, a handful of soccer games, right? We still are trying to learn how many games we will host and what uh, rounds we'll host. But it goes beyond just putting those matches on. There's so much uh, logistics and coordination that goes into it. Uh, all the way on and from, you know, starting at the airports to the ground transportation, to the hotels, um, to the practice facilities, the fan fest, uh, you know, all the different things that go into this from a sustainability perspective or a human rights perspective, or like I said, even a community legacy perspective. Uh, there are literally dozens and dozens of moving parts and it, and it takes um, 
uh, a major effort to unify uh, a, a large series of stakeholders to bring them together in order to pull this off uh, properly. Uh, where would you say MLS is right now? Just kind of a very quick state of the union. Uh, look, MLS continues to be a league on the rise in the global landscape of, of soccer or football. Um, it's a league that um, continues to, you know, not first of all, add teams. St. Louis came in uh, this past weekend, new stadiums going up. Uh, new investors and owners, um, and you referenced the Apple TV deal, um, which is a new distribution method for um, for MLS. And I was able to watch a handful of games this weekend. The production quality was great. I thought it was a great uh, and impressive showcase for the sport and for the league. And uh, it's just a, a league right now that continues to, to rise and uh, really doesn't have an upside to it. I mean, a, a, it, there is no you know, ceiling to it is what I'm trying to say. It can continue to to rise and, and play on the global stage. The competition continues to get better. The quality of play gets better. More foreign players are coming in. Uh, MLS is now a bigger player on the transfer market. So really everything about the league is uh, continuing to grow. And it's something for me, I, I was part of the league at first in 2000 when it went through its growing pains. Um, and I've seen so much transition over the last 25 years. It's really pleasing to see MLS continue to just get stronger and stronger. And it is in a unique place in among American sports leagues in that soccer is really an international sport. You mentioned the transfer market, you know, that for people who are not aware, that means someone, uh, a player in Bundesliga, the German league, could, you know, just be transferred over to an MLS team or vice versa or South America. Um, so what does it take to kind of get to the level of, you know, I won't set the bar at Premier League because that's the, the biggest league in the world right now, but into the Bundesliga, La Liga, into that level, um, what's it going to take for MLS to, to reach that tier? Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I think many of those things are starting to be put in place, if not already in place. It's, you know, it starts with ownership and investment. Uh, infrastructure around stadiums and practice facilities, quality of play, which is based around the talent and the investments that are made in, in players and player development. Um, but I think, you know, probably at the end of the day, the way it's going to be measured by media and others um, will be relevance. And uh, that's something that MLS continues to grow as well. Um, how, how much can its fan base grow? How much more media exposure and coverage can it be uh, to become a, you know, uh, a truly relevant league and sport in our country and beyond. And uh, of course, it's something as, as for those of us who worked in the league have been fighting for since day one, the progress has been great. I think anybody involved with the league would, would admit that there's, there's, there's more to go, but um, when you have all these pieces in place and you're, you're um, tremendously relevant, then I think you can say um, you're on the scene with the rest of those uh, large leagues that you've mentioned. What's what are the big steps on on your horizon? Obviously, the, the World Cup itself is happening in three years, but are are there milestones along the way that um, are, are kind of key points for you in terms of how this is all progressing? Yeah, I think you know this year, twenty twenty three is going to be a year of really uh, putting the pieces in place. Uh, like I said, building a, a a legal organization, getting a board of directors um, on fundraising. Uh, you know, it's going to cost each city. A tremendous amount of money to put on these events, and and we all have some uh, responsibility to raising that money to be able to cover expenses. I think it's about making key decisions on renovations uh, to stadiums, to training complexes that may or may not occur, um, identifying locations for fan fests, uh, team hotels. You know, a lot of the key pieces I think in the major decisions 
will get made as part of this process in 2023. And then as we go to 24 and 25, you really start to execute. You start to put those plans in place. You start to see um, the structure come together um, as we get closer uh, to to ultimately the event happening and pulling it off. Uh, so um, in between there, a couple things you might see is obviously Copa America is coming in 2024. Uh, some host cities, including Houston, are, are likely to be uh, hosts of that event. And that was here in 2016 and played a big role. Um, but it would be a good test event for uh, the FIFA World Cup in 2026. And then there's also the possibility of more soccer events coming in 2025 as, as literal test events um, leading up to 2026 and getting at each city uh, through a dress rehearsal, if you will, to make sure that uh, when, uh, when, the, uh, when the curtain comes up in 2026, we're all ready to go. All right. Got it. Chris Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks, Owen. Appreciate you having me on. That's it for today. We have some really fun interviews coming up. I think you'll enjoy them. And if you're enjoying the show, let your friends know. I think we're doing something a little different from what else is out there, and we'd appreciate your help in getting the word out. Hit us up at today at frontofficesports.com, and I'll see you tomorrow.